came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Okay, hello everybody. Hi, Ksenia. Hey, Jason. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you today? I'm fine. I'm glad to be back. Definitely. Well, we are um, excited to record this episode, even though season five is finished. Hopefully you all heard the uh, final episode and wrap up, um, which was kind of a fun episode. And in our interlude before season six, we decided to record this special episode for you today so you don't miss us too much over the break. (laughs) And um, so throughout our five seasons so far, we've often talked about narratives of disaster, including the way disasters are represented and discussed in news, poetry, photography, song, and so on. So today we want to continue this conversation with the amazing conceptual artist Paula Morrison. And we got to know Paula through Radar, uh, Loughborough University's Contemporary Arts Program. If you remember, um, we had a live stream a few months ago with Libby Heaney and her project, The Whole Earth Chanting, mm-hmm. also commissioned by Radar. Um, so welcome, Paula. It's great to have you here with us today. Thank you. Paula works in a variety of media. Uh, Paula's practice is broadly focused on how we as humans try to order the world around us. And her exhibitions have featured all around the UK and in Europe. And today we are really, really excited to host you on the podcast. Yay! Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, this is exciting. So, Paula, I'd like to start off by asking you to share a bit about your background and um, how you got into this vein of work and maybe some of the projects you've been working on lately. Um, Yes, of course. So... um... As you mentioned before, I'm a conceptual artist. Um, I use various different media to express my ideas. um, And I'm quite interested in my place in the world and the universe. um, Mm -hmm. The systems we, like as humans, create and navigate and how we construct meaning and order the world around us. So, yeah, kind of looking at how all these things interconnect and relate. I often make work about things I'm anxious or worried about and um, also kind of look at absurdity a lot in relation to kind of things that I do or other people do to kind of live in this world and how we kind of construct it to help us. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't always make work about disasters. Um, I've got, um, I'm just going to give a few examples of recent projects to give a bit of a feel to like the sort of things I do. Mm -hmm. Um, Recently, I've done a project writing hundreds of letters to people in the post um, to ask them what the time is. I've created a one-to-one scale floor plan of a flat out of fabric. um, And the idea is to sew on it for the length of time it would take that it would take to buy that space in London if you were getting paid London living wage. 
Um, I've collected a year's worth of um, emails and messages, both sent and received, both sent to me and received. Um, um, sorry, sent by me and received by me, which apologise for being or replying late. <laughs> and I've been photographing the sky um, every day at the same time um, for about three years now, um, building up a picture of kind of the blues and the greys and how it changes over time and kind of, I guess, looking at our relationship to like colour and how that comes from nature, how nature's often informed our naming of colours or the opposite way around I don't know how much are we trying to structure nature or we're just naming it I don't know um mm. so as you can see I do often like long-term projects often quite obsessive um time consuming um sometimes kind of stressful um kind of building up a picture of my anxiety also sometimes perpetrating it which isn't great um I guess a taking and giving from the world um as much as I can and hopefully in a kind of considered way. Um, what I'm working on at the moment, um, truthfully, I'm not working on actually that much right now. I've just moved um, house, which is obviously like exhausting. So mm. I'm taking a couple of months off um, thinking about things. Um, but one thing I'm considering working on soon is doing some art pilgrimages. So I guess making that link between religion and art and um this idea of kind of walking as a journey and how how yeah you can kind of like incorporate that into a practice so yeah that's me and that's what i've been doing I really like your positionality in your art, and this is something I really want to ask about. You know, in your personal statements on the website, you write, and I quote, in my research, I often start with the personal. I examine how I interact with the systems around me and bring the personal experience into dialogue with wider conversations about the human mediated world, end of quote. And you know, the such positionality and also the vulnerability, that kind of anxiety that you uh, talk about so openly, we as academics, are not almost allowed to do, you know, when we talk about positionality very frequently, we are almost expected to remove ourselves from, right? We're not allowed to be sort of real human beings, right? And because we are asked to be objective and I use quotation marks or sometimes even neutral and again, in quotation marks and somehow, and even the language, right? With which we write um, is, is that, is, is cold, is emotionless. And there is no voice of ours in, in there which of course is not really possible uh, in real world. And so I wonder why being within a project is so important for you. What does it mean uh, to be within a project? It's a really interesting question, actually. And it's something I think quite a lot in relation to my practice and sometimes like hover between wanting to include the personal and not. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a really great question. I'm not sure if it's that the personal is important to me or whether it's just almost all that I know and the only position I can speak from. Um, and also kind of sometimes having the ability to have access to the information is also kind of a practical problem. Like I can collect evidence in some ways, 
but I don't always have the access or ability to collect evidence in the same way as potentially like an academic or a scientist or something like this, but I can always collect evidence about myself. Um, then in terms of positionality, I mean, it makes sense as an artist to either speak for yourself or to try and, like you say in academia, be neutral or somehow speak for the average person. But then who is the average person? Like in in your city or your country or in the world? Like it's like how do you um, work out the parameters of that and and kind of average something as wide as human experience? I mean, sometimes, yeah, so I guess I try and speak for myself and hope that someone else sees something of themselves and what I do. Um, I mean, sometimes I try and remove myself in some ways. Like I did this project. Um, I think I think you've maybe seen the pictures of it. Was um, I mapped all the shipwrecks around the British yes. Isles, yeah. and I did that from data that I found um, uh-huh. online. Um, so, in a sense, it's not personal, but it is. Again, I mean, I chose the British Isles. I'm I'm British. And I also kind of wanted to whisper something about like um, the UK and its colonial past and mm-hmm. use whisper something about that through like the use of kind of supposedly neutral data or or actually neutral data. I mean, depending on what your position on that is, um, I don't mm-hmm. know enough about how like kind of this information was collected to know the difference between those things. And it's kind of hard to speak from someone else's perspective. Like um, a couple of years ago, I did a residency in China for a month. And it was incredible, like this opportunity to go and live in Beijing. And um, Mm. I tried to learn Chinese a lot whilst I was there. And then I came back to the UK. And then um, we had an exhibition, like me and these four other people that went on this residency to Beijing, um, who were all like living in the UK. But then how can you make a project like about China, about mm-hmm. having only been there for a month? Like, what do I know about China and what can I really know? Like, and so I made a project about language. Um, I took a newspaper and I removed all the characters that I didn't understand yet. Um, <gasps> so it only left the characters I understood. And so also the way Chinese worked that skewed the meaning and changed it. And yeah. um, I sung a karaoke song, but I only sung the characters I know. And so it's like kind of like, um, so this is what I presented in the show. I was presenting it in one sense. They were facts. Like, this is how many characters I know in this song. And um, in that sense, it's kind of factual, quantitative information. But I guess it's kind of merging into the qualitative, like this showing a picture of the fact that I don't understand. I I lack the knowledge about the country that I'm making a piece of work about and so I can only present my experience um, of that thing. But I do think it's something I'm quite torn about, this personal versus like neutral or somehow wider perspective, because I think it can be more interesting sometimes, depending on what you're doing, to make it wider. Like, imagine I map where I walk in a day. I mean, maybe that's not interesting. But maybe if you map where everyone in the city walks in a day, I mean, maybe the mass of that is like interesting. But then also, I guess if you look at a lot of the arts kind of more broadly than like just fine art, like sometimes the personal is the best way to relate to others. 
like mm-hmm. imagine statistics on heartbreak it might be interesting or maybe even moving but compared to like a song or a film about one person's story it'll probably be less captivating mm-hmm. um and then again if you think about actually serious things that like a lot of people are trying to like make progress on like climate change like i think often the kind of broader facts that we we should care about is less engaging to people than like the story of like one orangutan and i think um sometimes ignoring the bigger picture is like a fairly normal human thing to do and i guess that's also kind of an interesting place to be in how we're structuring the world You know, I I absolutely love your reflection on this kind of lived experiences and also bigger picture and your your what you've done with with your experience in China, um, because you know very often when particularly in disaster scholarship, um, and I'm going to make all my not all my friends I've, all the reviewers to listen to this episode mm. because they will they will they will understand what we mean. Um, you know, very often we are kind of told off and our work is rejected because we want to focus on the lived experience and um because many scholars do not acknowledge that there are lots of things that they don't know right and it creates this sort of um very um, colonial and very expropriatory experience of research where we go and by we have it's a kind of an academic uh, generalist we uh, researchers go into the country and just pretend that they know the answers right and then these answers don't work and that is particularly salient in, in disaster scholarship and disaster practice. And I, I, I just wish that more of us um, thought about it in the way that you've just described, you know, that, that we need to acknowledge what we don't know because then the picture is so small. Um, and yeah, with Chinese characters, I can also completely relate. Uh, I lived in China for a long time. Um, oh, really? Just, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I speak Mandarin or I used to speak Mandarin I forgot it now um uh, and I it's just so much fun you know the characters are fun but the meaning can be so um changed if you don't pronounce them you know correctly that if you change the tonal um the tone of your voice right um and that is also really interesting um sorry we just went on a tangent (laughs) no not at all yeah I think it's I think it's um something I think that's being talked about a lot in academia I mean I'm not an academic but like as far as I can understand it is being talked about this kind of like idea of kind of like talking about what you don't know and acknowledging like different ways of knowledge um being saved over time and things like that Mm. to kind of acknowledge more than kind of like a western academic perspective on yeah on the world I guess it's definitely a big part of some of our recent conversations and disaster studies, you know, pushing back against some of these paradigms that are dominant and um, don't allow us to get to the core of some of these issues and violence that people face. And um, like when you were speaking there, um, I I was thinking of like how we relate to each other. We don't really... Like we, if we look at the science on how people change their behavior, it's not it's not usually because you give them like more data. Um, mm-hmm. 
it's it's like through relationship it's through stories it's through emotion um yeah right i mean i just love data too though that's the thing yeah. i think <laughs> i personally am quite swayed by data but then like i feel like yeah like it's not really a way to like win um friends or like win um win an argument is through data i mean it's it's obviously not it's like because humans are like emotional animals i guess like yeah definitely um so the ideas of space and time are prominent in your other projects and you just mentioned to us a few minutes ago the shipwrecks where there are no shipwrecks project which we're going to link in the show notes and in that project you created maps that were made so they just depict where there are and aren't shipwrecks around the british isles and nothing else not even the coastline and in doing that you created a picture of the nation defined by shipwrecks by its mistakes and tragedies very intentionally um and I, I i just loved looking at this and um also in your writing the time project uh, which you mentioned earlier in the episode where you had these letter exchanges with um so many people who responded to this question what the time is some responded straightforwardly and others became much more entangled sending the updates on time um and some even questioned the notion of time and so these are really important questions that you're posing and from our point of view as disaster scholars um it's really interesting because space and time uh, are things that we talk about often when we discuss disasters so i was wondering what for you is the deeper meaning of time and space and how do you I, engage with these ideas in your work more broadly um yeah again it's a really good question for my practice um both space and time um time in particular are themes that run through like a lot of my work and um it's it's kind of like almost like hard to define why I'm interested in those things but I think like because they define our very existence and this as I said like um being anxious about like my place in the world and like how I guess like acknowledging my own significance in mm the world and the universe like how small we are each as an individual like I think that's something that like I guess it builds a sense of wonder but it also kind of builds a sense of dread like mm. this idea that you don't matter like mm. is something I think I mean obviously I'm sure there's lots of things that people have like written about like letting go of the ego and all these other yeah. things but like I think it's something that like I do think about um worry about and try, then trying to construct meaning in your life in relation to that is like quite a, I don't know it's, it's something I think I've thought about kind of a lot of my life like not even like just as an artist um, like as a child I was always really anxious about time and I still am now and mm. I know it's kind of like internalizing a lot of kind of things in relation to capitalism all that stuff but yeah even as a child I was always anxious about it and I always used to say I wanted to live for 100 years and mm -hmm. die on my 100th birthday partly so it's like neat and tidy so it's <laughs> like exactly 100 years in the world yeah. but um also like so it kind of like a felt a full sense of security this like fictional plan for like how you're gonna live and like that you as if you could control that um and so I made I did this I've made this um, piece of work where I made two different websites. Mm 
one it's, is www.ishalllive100years.com and that counts how long I've been alive. Yeah. And then www.butimstillrunningoutoftime.com and that counts down the time until the date and time of my proposed death um, oh, wow. on my 100th birthday. Um, and it was funny because I, I, I had to ask my mum what time I was born and like she, she was like, oh, I didn't write it down. Like I was like, obviously really busy at the time. And then I was like, oh my God, mum, but I really need to know what time I was born. And she felt so guilty. She felt so guilty. She called up the hospital and the hospital where I was born has been demolished. And she called up the new hospital and found the records because she felt so bad that she didn't write down the time I was born. <laughs> but she hates that work. She hates that work though. She says it's like her worst one. Um, and then, and then, like, kind of in relation to that, I did a bet as well. I put a bet on with William Hill um, that I would live till I'm 100. Um, they wouldn't take a bet on the part that I died on my 100th birthday because they said it was too morbid. But I have a bet on at the moment, at odds of 100 to 1, that I live to be 100. So um, we'll really? see how that goes. Um, so, yeah, I guess, like, this is kind of, like, a broad overarching thing, but then it comes into a lot of different projects, like... Um, I did a project time well spent, which is the piece I mentioned before, where um, it's a floor plan of a flat made out of fabric. And the idea is to sell on it for the length of time it would take to buy that space in London, um, if being paid London living wage. And then accompanying that is a print, which alt- um, which details like alternate uses for that time. If you decided either not to work um, or not make art, um, all the things. And I guess that's kind of a much more day-to-day anxiety of, like, how you fit all these things in and also kind of, like, aspirations um, for, like, oh, I'd love to have a nice house and, like, what if you want to have children and or, and what if you also want an art practice and how do you have money? Mm. And, and, you know, like, fitting all these things but then also being like, oh, yeah, but I need to keep fit and I need to cook dinners like, mm. that are healthy and, like, just, like, this idea of like and then I need to have a social life and see your friends like this constant anxiety which I think like a lot of people have in general at the moment and um it was really interesting because I well like I was talking about earlier when you mentioned I did this um project with Radar in Loughborough um where I wrote to people in the post to ask what the time was and had these really beautiful exchanges with people um so some people just wrote back like this is the time and others like kind of went more in detail into kind of the nature of time and things like this but then after that um I got invited to do a workshop with some academics at Lincoln University and they were doing a project called pause for thought and um they yeah they were interested in I guess this kind of speeding up of time and Mm. um how everyone feels like they're not keeping up and they were specifically linking it to technology and and we had a bit of an online conversation me and a group of other people like from various different fields including artists um talking about how they kind of relate to this and um it was super interesting and then afterwards we had to make a piece of work um that was kind of a reflection on this conversation so like they were asking for kind of a short like written statement um Instead of that, I um, made a piece of work, which was, as I mentioned before, I collected messages and emails both sent to me and mm. um, sent by me um, that apologize um, for kind of being late. And this idea about like, 
I'm just going to, and it's kind of boring in a sense, but I'm just going to read out a few of them because it's really nice, like how it goes, because okay. um, it's just so repetitive. Um, sorry I missed your call. Sorry for the late reply. Sorry for the late reply. Sorry I didn't get back to you yesterday. Sorry for my crap keeping in touch skills. Sorry it's taken me so long to get back to you. Sorry for unprompt reply. Sorry it's been ages. Sorry I'm just capping up, running a little late. Sorry, completely forgot about this. I realise I haven't called you yet. Sorry I haven't called. Sorry for the silence. Sorry I missed you. Sorry I missed your call. Sorry it always takes me mammoth to get back to you. Sorry I should have messaged you earlier. Sorry for the delayed response. So just this idea that we're all trying to fit all these things in and there's like emails coming in and there's messages coming in and everyone's busy in their life and like people have like friends and family that they need to see and they have like dinners to cook and like um, no one's no one's really coping but like I guess like, mm. we don't really talk about that and I think with the pandemic that is something that has been discussed in some ways like especially in relation to um, people with children and um trying to work a full-time job and do full-time childcare at the same time and just the impossibility of that um but I think it's something more general in society and like it came up a lot interestingly in those letters as well this like idea of like having a different relationship to time because I wrote those letters and received the responses the majority of them during the January lockdown in um the United Kingdom so a lot of people were experiencing time differently, either kind of like talking about kind of this time at home or talking about jobs they have to do. And yeah, I don't know, it was interesting. So I guess this is like, as I say, kind of like this idea of time, both in a kind of like daily sense, like minute to minute to hour, but also kind of in this sense of like me in the universe and the infinity of time and space and like how mm. I deal with that. Um, these very broad kind of themes and then in a sense like also like often making work about space I mean it's kind of I think it's something that's like always through my practice as well but it's potentially less obviously prominent as as time is Um, so for example I've done a project for my um, it was kind of for one of my friends who um, used to laugh at me because I only had a, got an, a smartphone quite recently. And um, so I'd navigate, when I was living in London, I'd navigate London very differently to like how she did with a smartphone. So I kept little notes that I'd make to myself, um, like just little things like um, like leave 18, 1800 hours, walk to Seven Sisters, Victoria Line to Oxford Circus, 14 minutes, W1C to JW, walk to New Oxford Street, stop two, like, I'd make these little notes myself, like just to kind of like get around. Um, and I've made this little book of them, and it's I guess it's just like this idea of that there's different ways to navigate. Um, and the shipwrecks as well, this idea of space. Um, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, like I might be doing some projects on walking and pilgrimages, and I think mm. walking's a really interesting one because it kind of marries together time and space in this very like accessible way. I'm just enjoying this so much. It's fantastic. Thank, thank you for telling us about all these projects. And I, I want to ask about another project that I've um, 
I've enjoyed so much. So um, in, in your art, you look at the systems people create and the behavior that we exhibit that helps us exert kind of perceived control over our existence. And this is, this really resonated with me because this is something we reflect upon quite a lot again in disasters and discussing disasters. And of course, disasters is something that you're also interested in. And first of all, I want to thank you so much for sending me the Wildfires newspaper. I've been showing it to everyone and not allowing anybody to touch it. I've been really possessive about <laughs> it. It's, it's, it's just great. Um, so it's a 72 page newspaper that contains four years worth of different news stories about wildfires. Um, and I'll post some pictures on Twitter and Instagram if that's okay. And I've been sending pictures to Jason. It's just like, look how cool is this? Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And I know that there is also a flood newspaper as a part of your apocalypse series. And um, so can you tell us a little bit more about it? You know, how did you get to, to work on this project? How did you get to be so interested in disasters? Um, well, thank you. I'm so happy you like it so much. Um, it's like, again, it's kind of interesting because I'm not, it, I don't think it's the disasters that I'm actually interested in, in themselves, because they're obviously a lot of the time that these like very tragic events, um, and very frightening events. Um, but I guess I was kind of more interested in how we relate to them and the systems through how we hear about them. Um, I guess I'm like, obviously look quite anxious about like climate change and these kind of like big events that kind of feel like they really like skew your sense of like reality and I mean climate change is arguably the biggest threat to our species um and you could and I guess it feels very apocalyptic and um we've known about it for a long time but there's like a lot of inaction I mean even personally, I feel like I have a lot of inaction. I think about it a lot, but like I don't know what I'm really doing or what I really can do. And I guess like partly like kind of collecting these stories together to kind of build up a picture of that this thing is kind of all around us and like this idea that we need to kind of like engage with it. But also the absurdity reading about reading about like the end of the world in the newspaper is like such a weird concept like the idea that like I don't know like will we will we still be reading like or watching the news like um at the end of like I don't know like life as we know it or like mm -hmm. will those structures in our society break down first like mm. I don't know it's like mm. so bizarre and it's like especially when it feels like at such a crux moment for climate change like I know trying to make something an abstract concept into kind of like a day-to-day -day reality somehow and I don't know and there's a couple of books I wanted to mention because both of these like kind of inspired this project quite a lot um there's a book like Good Omens by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman oh yes um, I love it and <laughs> um, yeah I've I've read this I used to read this book as a child like over and over again and in it there's like two separate characters that don't know each other at the start who both like obsessively look at the newspapers every day and they find out about the presence of the antichrist on earth by tracking changes in the weather um and um also a, a book called the weather girl by helen barnes uh, helen barnes sorry mm -hmm. um in that there's a character that is a teenager who who basically um kind of has a virgin birth but she's just written off as like a teen mom and like kind of not very well taken care of by like society and she collects like miracles from the newspaper and 
in that is kind of this idea that like um that these miracles are kind of like very real and she's kind of somehow connected to all these things and she's the kind of like one seeing it so with these projects i kind of wanted to look at in a sense like um this idea of like kind of scrapbooking obsessive collecting piecing together information like almost like a film trope of like the the like obsessed detective in the basement like an amateur or an amateur investigator but then kind of like linking that somehow to like climate change and somehow to like our experience of it and then it's obviously absurd making another newspaper which is kind of like just perpetuating the cycle of kind of like making unnecessary stuff um but yeah i also the idea that whether you could really discover something groundbreaking in the evening standard or the metro like something that's like actually important to the world and the foundation of society and is like really overlooked is also i guess something in there about that as well yeah so cool i've been thinking like as you're talking about the the way this relates to like our work as people who study disasters and uh, work with often communities who experience um, the these events and indeed the historical process of risk accumulating um, in their communities over over time and like the, this issue of control is so interesting because it's it's like um, both control of time and the anxiety about losing control. Mm. Um, but then also like when, when I relate that to like thinking about research, it's like, you can, you can have this very positivist kind of approach to analysis and to truth and to knowledge which allows you to have a huge degree of control perhaps in your in your research and in your science but it it um excludes a lot of the lived experience it excludes the other other ways of knowing and experiencing the world and so like i i i, I sense like a tension in your work between like wanting to embrace all of that but also being anxious about the loss of control, right? Yeah, and I and I also think like especially in relation to like disasters, um, because obviously I'm not so it's look like, it's not like I know so much about kind of like the academic like view on disasters, but like I guess like from a news point of view, like there is some academic writing about like how we kind of like process news and mm. how like mm. um it always seems like it's somewhere else and therefore like less real or something um i don't know i'm not explaining that very well but i guess like this idea of like it being the other rather than like something it's happening to us and if it's happening to you i guess you don't necessarily have the time to like be processing it in the same way and so yeah like somehow like taking it seriously and taking it feeling it's like reality and I guess like like I said like kind of merging the abstract idea of these things with the day-to-day like with the mundanity of a newspaper and I think it's really hard to comprehend how some really big event would actually touch your life until it does and I think I mean I think I probably feel that way about a lot of aspects of climate change and and it's related disasters and I think possibly a lot of people do except 
people that it's happening to. Yeah, well, Paula, we um, appreciate so much the work that you're doing and for joining us today. Um, I think you'll give our listeners a lot to think about. And it's it's like great to have people who are operating in a totally different space than um, a lot of us who are in the in the research and looking at, at, at disasters. And so I think I think everybody is going to really appreciate this conversation. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much um, for inviting me. It's been really nice um, to talk with you, Ray. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paula. And for our listeners, just to remind you that season six will start in early January. Um, and as you know, we'll be uh, featuring many early career researchers, which we're mm-hmm. really looking forward to. Yeah. But also don't forget to join us for our Christmas special. Uh, if you missed my terrible jokes and Jason's um, also pretty terrible quizzes, uh, but fun, right? Both so, jokes and quizzes. Not They're amazing. <laughs> amazing. Fine. Jason's amazing quizzes and my really funny jokes. Uh, so, yeah, jo- join us for Christmas special. Um, it will be fun and games as always. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Cynia, Jason and me, Paula Morrison on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. 